0: So, Graham, I just want to say, again, a huge thanks for your participation in this resilience uh, podcast trilogy that we have. It's not often that you get to meet people who have deliberately chosen a career path that requires a huge amount of resilience. And I think in that respect, your experience and background is going to be enormously interesting for our listeners. So I wonder, Graham, if you could just give us a quick potted history as to who you are and what you've done in your career and how you've got to where you are today.
1: A real pleasure to join you and to wrestle with this knotty problem of resilience. I think good fortune or misfortune, whichever way you want to place it, has sent me on an early course where resilience was a bedfellow. And I see my life in chapters. I'm in chapter three now. Chapter one was my early years before my military career. Chapter two was my military career. Chapter three is where I am now. I intend to have a few more chapters but that probably won't happen <laughs> but who gives a damn. But chapter one was, was a you know, great family life but I went off to boarding school which was quite typical of young men at that time and went to Rannoch up in the highlands of Scotland where, you know, it was porridge in a stiff east wind. And you got up in the morning and ran twice round what was quite a large building without buildings, up by Rannoch Loch, irrespective of the weather, with no top and only a pair of shorts on. And, And then went back to the inevitable, well, there's no hot water, so it's just a cooling shower at best. And if you couldn't manage that side of solitude, if you couldn't manage that side of the physical aspect of being what seemed to be permanently cold, then then the truth is you would struggle with everything else. Now I struggled with my academic career because I'm dyslexic. Not badly so, but, but notably enough that in those early days before it was recognized as a special need or a real, not disadvantage, but a difference to how you have to learn and the time it takes you to look at things. You know, I was just classified as plain stupid, which probably was quite accurate in truth, but I had a great career. But it meant that I did not have the academic qualifications to go to university. I think it would not have suited me to go to university. I'd have just found myself drinking heartily and enjoying life, which is not unimportant, but it's not necessarily the foundation of the bedrock for where you're going to go on. So, I had limited choice. If you get a good education, that gives you multiple choices. I didn't. I had limited choice of which really, you know, it was the church or soldiering, I suppose, and me and God have an understanding, so I was never going, never going to the church. So soldiering it was, I went there at the age of 17, and that was therefore chapter two, and I found that I was a misfit who fitted. I was never, you know, head of the class or top of the cadet, roster you know i wasn't um, um a junior under officer or a senior under officer i was just officer cadet Lamb, and that was just fine and in many ways it allowed me to listen look learn reflect and consider i then joined the quiz in Holland, so i i went to Santos in 1971 some time ago same year that don McLean launched his uh his famous song "American Pie," the uh, which I think the favourite line in that, you know, you know, asked a girl who sang the blues for some happy news. She just smiled and turned away. It's such a great line. It is. But, but but found myself there for Sandhurst. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And having been at Rannoch, the idea of you know log races, wet assault courses, uh, early morning you know, stand up, change your clothes, do this, do that, was just a walk in the park. And in many ways, it was a holiday because I was down in England and the temperature was at least five or eight degrees warmer. So life was relatively easy. I then joined the Queensland Highlanders. Uh, I had a great time there and then did the normal things, Northern Ireland, uh, Central America, Scotland, Germany, Canada, all the, all the bits and pieces. And then in 1977, went and attended SAS selection which I passed and then that dotted in and out the rest of my career I did five tours ending up as the director of UK special forces in 2001 through to 2000 and late 2000 mid 2003 and then eventually retired having also commanded the the, uh, the UK's airborne brigade which was uh, which is great fun in the mid 90s and then retired in 2009, which then ended chapter two. And if I look back at that time, there's nothing I would have changed. So if asked if I had another run at life, then my view would be simply this, that that I probably would do exactly the same again. I try and not make quite so many mistakes and fall over quite as often as I did, but I wouldn't, want to be anything other anything other than a soldier it suited me perfectly for my limitations in academic qualifications my uh, style of living my my enjoyment in the outdoor without being a lunatic of you know cold bars and 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 walking around in a hair shirt and then chapter three was was started with a bang in so much as I was just coming to the end of my retirement and I knew I was retiring because I intended to retire at 55, when I was in Washington and had lunch with an old and great friend, General Stan Crystal, Stanley Crystal, whose book Team of Teams is an absolute must for anybody who wants to try and understand complex business and the problems it faces. But over a lunch of which Stan is quite frugal. You know, he's, he's famous for sort of only one meal a day. That's complete rubbish. He eats more than one meal a day. He eats pretzels all day and all sorts of other stuff. But he only has one large meal a day. In this case, we were having lunch at a Mexican restaurant. I think the grand total of the sort of... you know It's, it's difficult to eat for under $10 in Washington, D.C., but Stan could find restaurants that you could all eat for under $10, and this Mexican restaurant was one of them. Having shared the bill, then Stan turned around and said, Graham, I need you, I need you to come to Afghanistan, which my answer was, and he was there with his wife, Annie, who's a sweetheart. And, uh, and he said, I need you to come to Afghanistan. And I said, Stan, I- I'm just about retired. He said, yeah, I know that. And I wouldn't ask you if it wasn't important, but I need you to come to Afghanistan. And in about the time that I've just paused there, was a time it took me to say, of course. So I went there for a year, was shot at all the rest and set the conditions for some of the progress that's being made today in, uh, in that troubled but fascinating and wonderful country, Afghanistan, as it tries to resolve its, its internal dynamics of people, tribes, clans, and, uh, and its own future. But the rest of my time since then has been one of not losing sight of what matters in life and it's not about self it's not about playing golf three times a week with three old friends talking about the same old stuff but it's about trying to ensure that life continues with a greater purpose than just oneself and i think i'm doing okay in that
0: so that's me that's uh, brilliant. There's so much I'd love to kind of explore further. You've done this on a number of occasions. You've talked about the fact you've failed at many things. And I just wonder whether you could talk about failure in a bit more detail. For example, is there one thing, one failed event or one failure, as you've called it, that has taught you most things that you've learned in life? What failure has had perhaps the biggest impact
1: on you? I think it, it, it's interesting to look at, at, at failure in the round and I've always looked at someone like Sir Winston Churchill as a wonderful example of failure, of falling over and of getting up. You know, he failed at school, he failed to get to Sandhurst at the time he wanted, he failed to get into the regiment he intended to, He failed to get the times which he wanted wanted as his paper to report as a young officer in Afghanistan, in, in Waziristan, but got the telegraph. He failed to get the Victoria Cross, which he sought and probably could have nearly earned or did earn. He got a very decent mention in dispatches. He failed at Gallipoli and the Great War went straight into the trenches as a Lieutenant Colonel and fought (laughs) extraordinarily bravely in the most trying conditions, commanding the Royal Scots. He then left that, returned to politics, and in many ways was relegated then through that period, the gathering storm of the late 20s and the early 30s, ridiculed, neglected, pushed aside into the back benches, never, ever giving up but prepared for what was his finest hour, which was 1939. I am quite sure, can't say because I wasn't there, I'm not quite that old, but Halifax and Chamberlain and others, for very honourable and decent reasons of remembering what a horror the Great War was, of not wanting to return to war would have found an accommodation and an appeasement with Germany and Herr Hitler and fascism that would have then consumed us. Churchill, quite clearly, was not of that. His character, against all odds at that time, and most of Parliament, carried through. And so he had this extraordinary, you might say, endgame, He then got thrown out as prime minister at the end of the war and then then returned as prime minister before his death. But that, I think, clarifies failure in many ways. I think in books, The Meditations, by Marcus Aurelius, he talks about uh, falling down and getting up, you grow. Falling down and not getting up, you die. And so it's the getting up part of failing and then looking in the mirror and think, well, that didn't go well. What went wrong? not having hours of tortuous regret and torture on self, but a recognition that there was things you could have done, should have done, wouldn't try and make that mistake again and then move on. And you are so much better for that. Because life, from where I see and my experience, is a wonderful contradiction. You can only appreciate joy because you understand sorrow. You can only appreciate, I've often said it, you know, fine wine because you've had nothing other than brackish and almost undrinkable water. I can lie in bed at night on linen sheets and just for a moment just drop in with a satisfying comfort because one spent many nights sleeping on rocks near frozen to death up in the hindu kush or wherever
0: Hmm. so failure for you has been in your sort of winston churchill kind of analogy i guess it's just it's not one event it's everything over life that actually helps inform or develop you into the sort of person you might be
1: yes again i I would say that, you know, that lovely line in Ulysses, the poem, one of my favourite all time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: one line, it says simply, I am a part of all that I have met, mm-hmm. which captures in many ways the sum of their prior experiences. It's how you, you take those experiences. Another wonderful poem by James Oloy Flecker. What a, one, what a good name that is, eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, Flecker wrote, and, you know, go as the pilgrim and seek out danger, far from the comfort and the well-lit avenues of life. Pitch your soul against the unknown, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's it's this wonderful idea that 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 I think life is so much richer by its contradictions rather than success. Success is is a is a false god.
0: You know, it's quite interesting to sort of draw analogies to the world in which, you know, we operate in, which is the sales world. It's very alpha driven, it's all about success, it's all about achievement. You don't get any prizes for, um, you know, coming second or not meeting your targets. The level of tolerance that currently exists in organizations for non performing salespeople is pretty low. But there's a sort of bravura about sales which stops people from being able to talk about a failure in a positive sense, which I must admit I've always found slightly strange because a bit like you, I would say that you know, my biggest lessons in life have been learnt through failure. You know, it's painful, but it's the way you kind of reflect on it and pick yourself up afterwards where you can you know, sort of make great strides really in what you can achieve. But I have been really interested in this sort of culture that permeates sales. You know, for example, take COVID right now and the pressure it's putting under corporations to achieve results. A lot of organizations seem to think that COVID hasn't happened as far as salespeople are concerned. And so, you know, the goals and targets have stayed exactly the same. And we hear stories of organizations saying, well, COVID happened, you know, get over it just move on (laughs) don't use that as an excuse for not reaching your quarterly targets there may be something in what they say it'd be interesting to get your point of view on this about you know if you keep objectives the same you know maybe you'll stretch an extra five percent of performance out of people you know there may be an argument that that's good psychology but there may be an argument actually it's totally unrealistic you know, to expect targets to be the same when we've had such a downturn in the economy?
1: I mean, a, a number of fascinating insights on the sales space, which is that which we're, we're discussing and targeting in many ways are. And, and I'm hugely grateful I'm not in that sales space. I think that what you described, you know, the maintain the targets, just drive harder, nothing changes, get over it can occasionally work where you're faced with a problem. Now, what's the difference between a problem and a sort of crisis? You might say, well, a problem is what Apollo 11 had. I think it was seven major issues on the flight to the moon and its return. Computers almost rebooting on landing on the moon and the like. Apollo 13, on the other hand, didn't have a problem, it faced a crisis. They couldn't continue with the mission they were on, they had to readjust, they couldn't go to the moon. And it was all about recovering. And in many ways, you know, the crew did a fantastic piece of work at the speed they were working at, but it was Houston that brought them home. And so that relationship between Houston and the crew is an interesting one when I look at the sales world. Because if I were a salesperson, in what has already been challenging and difficult times, A world where for decades we've been able to look at and measure where we were, where we are, and where we're going as a company. And so you can trend profitability, you can trend markets, you can bring in artificial intelligence, machine learning, all the bits and bits, the algorithms, which which help that. But what you are is in a world which is principally one which Winslow Taylor would recognize one of increasing ultra efficiency. And that's great until you stress it. And if you stress it hard enough and the world was already stressing markets, business opportunities with unstable politics, you know, a a world which had gone from individual to family, to clan, to tribe, to nation states, 1648, Treaty of Westphalia, to alliances and empires, to superpowers, just two, then just one. And then we seem to be collapsing backward. You know, I look around and see a return of the Ottoman Empire, I see the return of the Russian Empire, I see the Persian Empire, I see the Chinese Empire, which was massive in its day, all coming back into light. And so we're almost dropping backwards. That means we're not going back to where it was, but that brings instability. We then find that overlaid with a world where people were managing risk, now they're manipulating risk. Where dynamic instability is something which allows opportunity to be seized, even though the reality would have your company do well, what you've done is created a perception where people will not invest in it. These levels of uncertainty, when then overlaid with Mr. COVID-19, just mean that you're dealing in a period which is genuinely that around what I would consider to be a crisis. And the crisis, I think, was defined by Thomas Schelling, one of the famous game theorists of the 1990s. You know, Von Neumann in the 30s, Nash in the 50s, and Schelling in the 90s. When he said the essence of a crisis is danger, unpredictability and you're not fully in charge of events and in many ways we can all relate to that so if your company merely turns around and says well pedal harder we're going to consolidate where we are then my view is that that might work for a while I'm not sure it's going to work long term number one number two is that if I was a salesperson in that company I would feel That this was not a fair deal. I would feel no sense of loyalty. I would feel even less sense of comradeship and understanding by those who are asking me, as I am already with less, having to do more, pedal harder, and meet targets which I know to be unachievable or bearing on ridiculous, and yet they're just shouting at me to meet them. That isn't, in my view, you know, to date that, that great line of uh, the Shakespeare, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters, as it would be today.
0: That's a great answer, Graham, and I didn't think I'd be citing sort of poetry and Shakespeare with, with someone who's um, sort of led the SAS in, in their previous career. So <laughs> It's been amazing. Can I ask you then? You know, we're talking about resilience, and what does that word mean to you? How do you define resilience?
1: Well, it's it's more than I think the sum of it of its simple letter art. One of my favorite, again, my good friend McChrystal, even though he dragged me out to Afghanistan and had me shot at for a year, one of Stan's great, great one-liners that he threw out, and he and he has a number, was that where he said. When you get on the ground and find out the order we gave you was wrong, execute the order we should have given you. That is resilience. And yet it wouldn't automatically resonate like that. And yet to me, that is absolute resilience because it means what you have is a company by design, an organization by design, whose culture is one that can adapt and can demonstrate agility people talk about, oh, you have to be agile. If you don't prepare your people, your company, and the protocols, the procedures, the processes which allow you to be agile, you won't. You can have people there who truly would change the direction of a company, but can't because you have not allowed them. The four big Throwaways that went with being a member of the special forces. Again, I, I steal straight from Stan McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. Was trust. To go back to the earlier conversation, you know, would you trust your superiors if they're just flogging you harder on the gallows? Trust is one. The second is this idea of a common goal, not a vision statement, but one by word and deed, everyone within a company recognizes. That it's a worthy and purposeful cause and it's not just about making money the third is empowered execution and that comes back to my when you get yourself on the ground you find out the order we gave you was wrong. Mm-hmm. execute the one we should have given you which means you have to have the confidence as an individual or a team to be able to see the opportunities as it fleetingly presents itself and while you are in a distributed space and unable to go back and check and lose time and possibly lose the opportunity, you can immediately seize it because you know if you took the question up, the chain of command, the chain of command will come back and say, well, of course, why are you waiting, Grim?" And the final one is shared consciousness. Now, shared consciousness is a bit more complicated to understand, but it's not just lots of emails. It's about a sense of of understanding within a group about what you're doing, what's going well, what's going badly, not a case of a blame game. There's a great line from Eisenhower, which once said, the plan is nothing, planning is everything. Shared consciousness is about this constant relationship of planning, of what you're doing and how it's unfolding and an honesty and openness which allows the inconvenient truths to be told. So if you look at, you know, many ways to go back to my Apollo 11 and Apollo 13 story, Apollo 11 and Apollo 13, Apollo 11 only got to the moon, in my personal view, in before the end of that decade, which is what Kennedy said it would do, in 1969, because of the tragedy of 1967. When three astronauts burnt to death on the ground, which is now known as Apollo 1. Gene Kranz, who was one of the flight directors, and then the the flight, as we've seen in the movie with Tom Hanks, of Apollo 13 and of Apollo 11, in 1967, three days after that event took place, before all the reviews were in place and everybody was in lockdown and no one could say anything, pulled all his people together and said, We were the cause. I need you to go back into your offices and write on your blackboards, because that's what they worked with in those days, blackboards and slide rules. Write on your boards and do not erase it. Tough and competent. That DNA, that culture was set in 67, in my view, because he said that the reason we were rushing everything, we, we knew there was things that weren't right. These were the inconvenient truths. No different than Columbia. Everybody knew it shouldn't have launched because it was too damn cold and it had sat on the pad too damn long. Mm -hmm. So this openness isn't about showing weakness. Quite the opposite. It shows inherent collective and individual strength. And it means you don't suddenly find yourself with a frozen O-ring and the consequences then follow from a company position. But somebody can turn around and say, do we really want to do this? Is this us? Is this deal so important that we're going to throw away what we stand for as an organization, ethically, morally, in our principles and values? Now, those things you might say, well, that's a luxury. My view is it's not a luxury. I think it's part of, in fact, how a company is successful and is able to change and adapt. And Darwin, I think it was Darwin, but he's... Recorded, but you know it's not the most intelligent or the strongest of the species that survives. It's the species that adapts. And if companies don't adapt, including how they manage their sales force, what they expect of their sales force, the authorities they give to their sales force, their understanding of the pressures the sales force makes, this is not about relieving pressure. This is about focusing pressure to make sure that it's effective, and you get positive and constructive and future
0: results. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just going to quote you something that was a reflection of some academics who were studying the topic of resilience back in 2013, which says, we do not really know if resilience is the result of designed processes or perhaps the outcome of improvisation and luck.
1: Oh, I'm not so sure about luck. You know, I'm, a, I'm an old, mm. old-fashioned fellow that says, you know, that, that, that occasionally things will work in your favor, but they'll invariably work in your favor because you set the conditions as an individual and within your team and what you were doing, which presented so much more opportunities to be lucky, actually, to be successful. You know, so preparing, you know, we do the intelligence preparation of battlefield. You never, you know, as a soldier, you're an idiot if you enter a fair fight. Intention is to ensure that you take all the advantages you can by understanding the enemy, understanding the circumstances, the weather, the going, the, all just keep ticking the list off. Where you have technical advantages, where they have a resistance that is difficult to define, a network which is difficult to identify. But you take all those and you set the conditions to be successful. That isn't lucky, but in many ways, people will, will often say, oh, he's a, he, you know, he's a lucky old sodo He's a lucky fellow. Invariably, you know, luck is, I think it was Gary Player once hit a shot from the sand bunker that went into the hole and somebody said, you know, that was a lucky shot. Said, it's amazing how much more I practice, how much luckier I become. Mm-hmm. And I think that resonates through with the idea that I'm, you know, the prepared mind, the directed mind, the the, not, not you're trying to control events because, you can't. You can't control chaos. What you need to do is be to operate through it, and you do that by design. So you make sure your structure of your company has resilient, has has depth in it, so you can knock bits off or people can fall. You know, I look at the moment during this COVID, a you know, number of people, you know, have found working from home to be mentally exhausting, and in some cases where they have had to take themselves offline because of the struggle they're having in dealing with the isolation. Others have absolutely risen, enjoyed, been empowered by the ability to stay at home and work and not find themselves commuting for three hours every day. So it's not that you know COVID's the guilty, it's just people find themselves in different places. But how each individual therefore reacts to that genuinely matters in their approach to contributing to where the overall effort of the sales team or whoever it may be is going.
0: So we've we've talked about resilience at, at a number of different levels. You've talked about design, you've talked about processes, you've talked about adaptability. Do you think resilience is something that can be built, you know, you know are you born resilient is an organization born to be resilient or what 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 creates more resiliency at an organizational level perhaps than at a personal level
1: And i think the term character. I remember once at Yale, I did a little bit, a little bit of, it's not really teaching. I just, understood I was, Stan McChrystal was doing the teaching. I was the light entertainment from the Brit in the room as I went through. But Yale, I remember a young, a young undergraduate coming up and saying, oh, you know, General, we really enjoyed that, that, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do this with my life. What would be a view? And I said, this is a wonderful university. It's one of the great universities of the world. You are in a privileged place, position to be here. You're uber smart, because I get that, and you will do well. But here's the interesting thing I said when you go to your first interview, whether it's by dint of having been from Yale, whether it's by dint of having been at Yale and got a very good degree, whether it's by dint, of your family name, your mother or your father's success. When you go to that interview, your competencies to get there have already been evaluated and probably assessed. When you walk into the room, there are two things which will get you the job or not. And that is your ability or inability to communicate. And the second is the strength and depth of your character. And so I think character absolutely without any doubt, is built and developed, improved, occasionally found out over life's great experience. And that's everything. Anything and everything one does has an impact upon the strength and depth of your character. And I think character matters. So as an individual, you have that character. Actually, a company can have culture, a DNA, and a character. If I look at the British military, obviously it's pretty you know, 300 years. And by the way, you know, not just success upon success upon success upon success, but in many ways as many failures, with the occasional notable Trafalgar, Waterloo, D-Day, you name it, Alamein successes, which have come with its passage. But the organization has a character to which all the individuals in it do not wish to let it down so there's a connection between that loyalty that trust that you know it it is truly a social contract between the individual and the company they're in and if that company treats them well if it sets high ethical moral and principled values as to how it operates and to what it does, if it recognizes good work, understands that mistakes will be made and failures will occur, but doesn't tolerate idleness or bad work, then you feel you're part of something greater than self and your peers and your friends above and below you all reflect that same, moving in the same direction and that then gives you this extraordinary capacity To be able to handle a bad day or two or quite a few
0: yeah that's very interesting graham i'd love to just dwell a bit more on this word adaptability that you've referred to earlier on and you know if if you start to look at some of the skills that you've picked up and you've developed throughout your army career you must have been in some pretty tough situations and I do remember you speaking at one of our GST events in the past and you you spoke about reflective practice and you you, you spoke about space and having time to think, which in the heat of gunfire or whatever it might be, must be pretty difficult to do. So I wonder if there's a connection between the ability to adapt and the ability to reflect. And now how do those two things coexist, at least in your mind?
1: I think only twice in my career did I find myself in a minefield. The trick there was to stop, recognize where you were, and then begin to work out how you were gonna get out of it and how much time you had to get out of it. It's an interesting insight to to this idea of of time, irrespective of the, the pressure to get out or the stress to get on can lead you to a very bad decision. You know, if you take, I did pentathlon when I was at, at, at Sandhurst, you know, because I had never ridden a horse and I never fenced before. I'm not a great rider and I'm not a great fencer, but I did okay because what I did was make sure that I concentrated on the skills I wasn't good at rather than the skills I was a good swimmer, I was a fair runner and a fair shot, but it's concentrating the skills I wasn't good at. But but it's very easy to make a bad decision. on the horse riding, it was always about, and I always seemed to get the horse called Diablo, and he was jet lagged and had just, I mean, serious attitude. You had five minutes before you then rode the thing over, some quite serious jumps. But the trick was always to steady the horse before the first jump. So you forget the timing. You must steady the horse, because once you've got four faults, four, 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 you cannot recover. So... In many ways, what you're looking to do is set the conditions both for self and your team and the organization to not make a bad decision. Einstein's great one. If you had 60 minutes to save the world, what would you do? His answer was hugely informative. I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes finding a solution. My experience of life, and in most circumstances, people spend 59 minutes trying to find a solution and the last minute blaming everyone else it's very difficult to stand back but actually you must stand back and then stand back again in order to get perspective to steady a rapidly beating heart mine doesn't go that fast nowadays to gather your thoughts not to overly solutionize but allow this extraordinary grey porridge we have between our ears to help you or the collective of your team's grey porridges to help you all by being able to draw on their synapses memory and deep memory which you will not recall if you're trying to make it happen or under immense pressure to help find a solution having to find a problem, disassemble the problem, reassemble a solution. That gives you the possibility of therefore adapting, not just changing and doing something, because sometimes you'll do something which is a bad decision going in a bad direction because you rushed. You felt all this energy to get on, whereas you should have said, check, hold, just hold well, I figure this one out, and then move in a direction which you've thought about. Now, to move in that direction requires you to do two things. If it's opportunity, whether it's something that you have not yet seen, or it's something that is suddenly presented, you have to have within your organization, so the sales team, people who have the time to reflect and think, and you have to, as its leadership, ensure they have that capacity they themselves must make that capacity because you have to first of all see the opportunity and then secondly you have to have the protocols and the, and the wherewithal to be able to seize it if you have not done either if you have not prepared people allowed them the latitude allowed them the thinking time in put down a commitment that they, they must have some time for self, then they will not see that which is right in their face because they're pedalling so hard, they're on the peloton, their heads down, the machines at whatever it is, 20, and your heart's about to come out of your mouth. They can't see the damn truck, which is on their side of the road coming to them. So you have to do those two things and then then you have the ability to adapt. And it's adapt in the right direction. It doesn't mean it's always going to be right. It doesn't always mean it's going to be the best decision. But the reality, if you have not set those conditions, then the truth of the matter is you now will be gambling, not lucky. You'll be throwing a coin and hoping that the decision or the action you took will work. And if it doesn't, it could be a catastrophic failure.
0: I think some of the pictures that you're painting with standing in a minefield and preparing the horse for the jump, they're quite striking images for people in the sales world. Graham, there's so little time for reflection. I can't tell you, you know, you you sort of achieve a quarter result, you're on to the next quarter. You know, you finish that, you're on to the next quarter. It's relentless, and it's uh, I think it's a problem for all the reasons that you've given. That you know, you've got this relentless pressure to achieve goals and targets and a, a lot of this if we look at systemically you you sort of you can connect to sort of a chain of events you've got the stock market you've got the quarterly announcements you've got directors pay related to increase in shareholder value the system itself that organizations have that are supposedly there to create the best shareholder value don't lend itself well, this is an interesting one, don't lend itself for the kind of reflection that you are suggesting is important to learn, to develop, to adapt, to build resilience into, you know, the very organisation that these leaders are leading. So I, I don't know if you've got a comment to make about that in in any way. Is the system broken? Is capitalism as we know it broken?
1: No, yeah. no. I, I think in many ways that that, you know, that, it's going through a a bit of a metamorphosis. It's it's having an adjustment of a a return to thoughtfulness, which has been lacking while people have just pursued the bottom line as the bottom line. And it's only been about securing that advantage, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street types of thinking. If if I look at the commodity that, that the salespeople are dealing with, which is goods, material, and value. I always had a simple view that, that and, and in the most difficult of circumstances, I always forced this on myself, which was I needed to have, you know, in very simple terms, a third of my time to the task, a third of my time to the team, and a third of the time to myself. And the self-time would be as much as taking exercise, reading maybe only five pages of a book but i did that in the most awful of circumstances you look at the great war which is a true you know we can imagine what it would have been like to be in the trenches and the like and yet look at the poetry that was read and written in in there and you think how was that possible now the reality is that that the second part is is, is no one's paying attention to the team actually what's happening in your sales world is people are completely fixated by the task And the commodity they're dealing with is cash. In my world, the commodity I'm dealing with is life. And that is truly priceless. Beyond any measure of any amount of money in any market, anywhere in the world. And yet, we, people like me, would force ourselves to take time so we did not waste it. It's the idea of doing more with less. It's, it's, it's you can create time for yourself because what you've done is you've understood who your team are and what they're capable of doing. You have empowered them further. You've shared some of your initial concerns or whatever it can be. You have a network of communication. Einstein, again, a great example, before the internet more or less, had an extraordinary network of letters and friends around Europe which he wrote to, where he shared openly his thoughts on relativity, his scientific, the the IP of Albert Einstein is spread across his letters to friends while he tried to wrestle with extraordinarily challenging problems, but he shared that within the team that he considered, the band of brothers and sisters that, that made up that scientific community which allowed him to, you know, that classic E equals MC squared. But I think that in your sales world, what's happened is people have become so Winslow Taylorish, ish so focused on the bottom line, so focused on the task, they failed to see the team and they failed to see self. Both those require to be allowed time to reflect, to build, to develop. And the result is, the task is so much better
0: done. That's very good. Well, Graham, I'm very sort of aware of time and I know that we could probably go on and on and on (laughs) on this topic. It's so fascinating.
1: A real pleasure to join you and to wrestle with this knotty problem of resilience.
0: So it's great privilege to have Graham join us on this, the first of our trilogy of podcasts on resilience. He's an incredibly busy man and we're lucky very much to have him in the country. He's out of the country, as you can imagine, fairly frequently. He's had some amazing experiences that we can all take on board and apply to our own sales careers. We're going to include links to his profile in the show notes Again, if you enjoyed this podcast and you're not yet subscribed, click on the button now to get updated with new episodes that are coming out. We'll also include a link to subscribe to our newsletter so that you'll get more relevant sales content directly into your inbox. Uh, and please spread the word, uh, share it with at least one other salesperson if you can. Next up on the resilience trilogy is Baz Gray, an ex sergeant major in the Royal Marines. And we'll be talking to Baz. Gray more on the topic of personal resilience rather than organizational resilience and I'm sure you'll find that fascinating and interesting as well. So on that note I'll say good evening to you all and look forward to your joining us again on one of the future episodes.